Okay, the only announcement that I can, um, that I've got down here for this week is that we will be having, uh, the annual uh, teen Christmas party is going to be here at the church at 7 o'clock Saturday, and, uh, Jeff Phipps is the one to contact for information about that to help or to, um, just to get information for anybody who needs to come. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this uh, evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin class with a few moments of silent prayer just as a reminder to everyone that of the importance of keeping regular tabs on your sin, confessing sin regularly throughout the day to make sure you stay in fellowship so that you can uh, maximize your time on this earth for glorifying the Lord and for spiritual growth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together to study your word, to think through the history of your Revelation to us, the history in the Old Testament where there were even times when the law was lost, buried deep within the uh, temple as people ignored your word, ignored you, sought solutions through idols and other other methods, and yet there was no real uh, answer. And it wasn't until your word was discovered that there was a restoration and that there was a recovery from sin and that there was a true revival in the biblical sense in the nation of Israel. Father, it's always been that way in history, that only when your word is recovered and people put their focus on your word to the exclusion of all the other distractions, that there is a genuine uh, genuine shift in the thinking of mankind, a genuine improvement of society and culture. And, Father, we pray that uh, that might happen again in our li- even in our lifetime. Father, we pray for us that as we are here looking at your word, studying it, that it might not be just an academic exercise, but one in which we're answering the question, how should I change the way I think? How should I change the way I live that I may conform to the image of Christ, which is your goal for our lives? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 8, and I wasn't here last week because of... uh, Problems coming back from pre-trib, and the week before, I think, was Thanksgiving, so it's been uh, two weeks since we've had class on Thursday night, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time in review as we come into Romans chapter 8. Now, Romans 6, 7, and 8 is the best and most detailed or logically developed explanation of the spiritual life within the uh, epistles written by Paul. And if we think about what Paul wrote, the first epistle that Paul wrote was the epistle to the Galatians. And the Galatians contains in sort of a seed or seminal form a lot of the basic teaching that we find here in Romans 6, 7, and 8. 
although when by the time Paul wrote Romans, he is um, uh, has developed his thinking much much more, and he's writing a uh, a different kind of letter to the uh, Christians in Rome, and he's laying out in an extremely logical manner the foundation for uh, Christianity. First, he deals with the problem of sin in the first couple of chapters, and then the problem, uh, if the problem is man's unrighteousness, then how does man get righteousness? And man gets righteousness by having it given to him by God, justification by faith alone is the doctrine, and it is imputed or reckoned or given to the person who believes the promise of God, specifically in this age, the promise that Jesus Christ is the prom- is the Savior, the Messiah, the one who died on the cross for our sins. So as we walk our way through Romans, we see that there's a, a tight logical progression. Sin, then justification, Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5 begins to work out the benefits of our justification because we have been justified by faith. Paul begins in Romans 5.1. We have, as a present possession, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we get into Romans 5.12 and following, Paul is setting up the, um, setting up the transition from talking about how to be justified to the topic of Romans 6, 7, and 8, which is how does a justified person live? So the issue in Romans 6, 7, and 8 isn't how to move from spiritual death to spiritual life. The issue isn't how to become justified. The issue is how does a justified person live? And so when we get into passages in Romans 6, 7, and 8 that talk about death, we have to remember that this isn't talking about the spiritual death of the unsaved person. That would mean the solution is, is justification, regeneration. But that the salute, the issue in death in Romans 6, 7, and 8 is the death-like experience of the believer who continues to swim in the stream of carnality. And as long as we are living according to the flesh, which is the term Paul will use, according to the sin nature, then we experience the same consequences of sin that the unbeliever experiences. While he is spiritually dead, and the believer does not become spiritually dead if once he is made alive in Christ, but he does experience a death-like existence because he's not benefiting from the life-giving blessings and benefits that God has already given to us as believers. And as we have studied in Romans 6, 7, and 8, we I connected that a lot to what we've been studying in Colossians on Sunday morning, and Paul approaches the Christian life the same way there, by going first and foremost to what happens in, in a the legal realm before the throne of God at the instant that a person believes in Jesus, and that there is a transformation that occurs at that point in time, a transformation that not only involves the declaration of justification and not only involves regeneration, but also involves this doctrine that is 
often misunderstood today, called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we studied that that should be uh, more accurately interpreted or translated as a baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And it's an identification that occurs at the instant that we trust in Christ. At that instant that you say, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe Jesus will save me. I believe Jesus is the one who uh, paid my penalty. As soon as we trust in him, at that instant, the God the Holy Spirit is used by Jesus to uh, transform us and to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. And so that it is through that identification with his death, burial, and resurrection that we enter into Christ. And this is a uh, doctrine or theology that is often referred to as positional truth because it refers to the truth of our new position in Christ. And Paul is so, Paul goes back to this. In, in Colossians 2 and 3, he does the same thing. Everything he says about living the Christian life is based upon developing our understanding of this radical thing that happens, but we don't experience it. The only way you can learn about the baptism by the Holy Spirit is by reading about it in the Scripture and coming to understand these passages. It's not something that knocks you off your feet when you trust in Christ. It's not some inner feeling. You don't get the... Uh, uh, sort of butterflies in your stomach or a rosy glow. You don't uh, have any kind of external manifestation. There's no experience that goes with it. Uh, you might have the flu. As a friend of mine uh, one time had had mono, he wasn't any better. He just uh, was the only thing he could quite get his mind around while he was uh, down flat on his back with mono was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And he was reading through that. And uh, <clears throat> finally decided, after years of being witnessed to by his uncle, a guy by the name of Bill Munnerlin, that some of you knew, uh, he finally, at the age of 32, trusted in Christ. And he said he just rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> but at that instant, he was baptized by the Holy Spirit and placed in, in Christ. And that's what Paul says in Romans 6. Uh, I'm just going to read this again for review. He says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, that is, entered into, identified with Christ Jesus, entered into him, were baptized into his death? So when we uh, have uh, water baptism, it depicts and teaches this abstract doctrine. That's one of the things that is, is a, has been a real tragedy in the history of Christianity is that people haven't really understood baptism. Baptism is just like the Lord's table. It is a visual uh, a symbol to help us grasp a, an abstract reality. And so in the act uh, or the ritual of water baptism, somebody is taken and they are plunged into the water, and that is a picture of our identification with Christ in his death. At Christ's death, what did he do? He paid the penalty for sin. So sin is dealt with at that point. So our identification with Christ in his death has to do with the application of that uh, sin uh 
sin penalty, that payment of the sin penalty uh, to us. The being under the water is analogous to Jesus being in the grave for three days. And then when we come out of the water, that is a picture of Christ's resurrection to new life and that we now have a new life because of our identification with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. So Paul says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, and that's everyone who has believed that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized or identified into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And it's in that verse that Paul says, here's the point. We have to learn how to walk in newness of life. It's not a methodology. You're not going to get it because you come to church and you hear five points on how to, how to be uh, a victorious Christian or ten points on how to live the Christian life, how to walk the Christian walk. Paul says the way you are going to live as a Christian is because you have to get inside your head the fact that you're not the person you were before you were saved. You're a new creature in Christ. You have a new identity in Christ. There are new realities about you, and you have to learn these from the Word. And you're not going to get them from experience. It's not going to be based on how you feel about your relationship with God. It's not going to be based on how you how you feel about sin. It's not going to be based on any kind of experience. It's going to be based on the fact that you understand in your head that something has changed. And then because you understand that new reality, you're going to live differently. Now, there are people who just have a hard time doing that. Let me use the illustration of immigration. Back in the 19th century, if somebody immigrated to the United States, if they came from Eastern Europe or Southern Europe or if they came from uh, Western Europe or even if they came from uh, uh, Africa or Asia, when they came to the U.S., they wanted to be an American. They left behind uh, most of their cultural identity. For a while, they may live with others who came from their background because that was something similar, but as they came to understand America and English, they came here to be an American. And and many families that came here, many couples that came here, uh, and they had children and raised those children, the children never learned the language of their parents' homeland. It was never taught to them because those parents understood that they need, they had a new identity. They weren't Germans anymore. They weren't Swedes anymore. They weren't French anymore. They weren't Russians anymore. They were now Americans. They weren't Greeks. They weren't Italians. They were Americans. And so they had a new identity, and they had to learn to live in light of that new identity as defined by this new culture. Well, in the Christian life, it's that same way. We, become, we get a new identity, and we have to quit using the language that we used in the old country when we were spiritually dead and we were carnal. We need to quit thinking according to the cultural norms and standards when in the old country they were under the tyranny of a king or a dictator or an absolute ruler, just as before we were saved, we were under the tyranny of the sin nature. They have to uh, learn to think in terms of everything that they are now in this new, new, new country. And then they have to live in light of that. 
uh, and that takes time to adapt the, that new mentality. But what we have today is we have people who come over from uh, many countries, but especially from Muslim countries, from uh, Saudi Arabia or uh, uh, Somalia or other Arab, Arab countries, and they come here and they go into a sort of a... Uh, 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 apartment complexes or other uh, areas where they are uh, like a, like a ghetto where they're separated from America, and and you get people who come up from Mexico and they go live in a community where everybody speaks Spanish, and there may be one, two, or three generations that never learn English. They don't learn to function as an American. They don't want to take on the new culture of being an American and leaving behind the culture of what they were. And that's just like most Christians. They want to continue all of the ways that they had before they were saved. They just want to make sure they're going to go to heaven. But what Paul says is you've got a new identity, and once you capture that new identity, you're going to have freedom and learn to enjoy freedom. And uh, in, in just like politically, you come, in, historically, people would come to America because they wanted to be free. They wanted to be free not to do whatever they wanted to do, but they wanted to be free from the intrusions of, of, um, of large government, of big government, always getting into everything in their life. I, uh, this afternoon, I'm going to give a commercial right now, so if you don't want to have a commercial from the pulpit, take a vacation mentally. Um, some of you know this story that last last June, uh, I wanted to take some uh, some kind of little special gift with uh, with us when we went to Israel to give some of the people who were speaking to us uh, a little something from Texas. We waited to the last minute just because of so much that was going on, and we finally decided what to give them, and we thought it'd be great to give them a little tin. You know, you see the small tins of of nuts with uh, various kinds of nuts in there with a picture of the outline of the state of Texas and the map of Texas sort of inside the state. And it was too late to order from the place uh, that we would get stuff like this before over in Austin. So I looked around in Houston. I found a place called the Houston Pecan Company. And it's just a little bit bitty warehouse kind of looks for nothing place over in in sort of the uh, Gulfton ghetto area of Bel Air. And went in and I immediately recognized that... uh, that the lady who seemed to be running everything was Jewish. I told her what I wanted it for, that we were going to go to Israel. And um, and that was immediately established a connection. But Myers was with me, and he was looking at something on the wall, and there was an article from the Houston Post back in the uh, either late 80s or early 90s. And it was and uh, it was the story of a man who had been a Holocaust survivor because of uh, Oscar Schindler. That was the father of the lady who was helping me, and he was the little old guy who kept coming in and out in his walker. And so we had a great visit with him. Well, today I went back over there to visit them and uh, to get some nuts for some uh, presents and things and for Christmas. And there was another guy in there who was an Israeli artist. And uh, I met him and got to visit with him, and he was at this event, of uh, this one with the Israel event I spoke at about a week ago. And he said, uh, I knew you looked familiar, but I just uh, didn't recognize you in a sweatshirt and blue jeans. But when I pulled out, he had a, a bumper sticker on the back of his car, and it's, it said um, in large letters, the bigger the government, and then I had to get real close because it had real small print, said the smaller the citizen. 
I thought that was a great way to put it. We've got a lot of very conservative uh, Jews in America, though, as as, um, uh, one Jewish writer puts it, Israelis are Republican and American Jews are liberal. So that's sort of the difference between the two. Anyway, uh, when you have big government, like people had in the old countries before they came to America, it was a tyranny. They didn't have freedom. Because the bigger the government, the less freedom we have. The smaller the government, the more freedom, the larger the citizen is. And so when uh, they came to America, they had freedom. And that fits the analogy that I'm using, because when we're freed from the sin nature, when we trust in Christ, we're freed from the sin nature. And that's the freedom that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8 and the first five verses. It's what Paul is referring to in Galatians uh, chapter 5 verse 1, that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want to. Freedom is the freedom from the uh, the tyranny of the sin nature so that we can do what God wants us to do. We're always under some sort of authority. It's either going to be in the uh, live, placing ourselves under the authority of the sin nature and Satan or placing ourselves under the authority of God, but there's no uh, neutral ground where we're just under our own authority, but we deceive ourselves in arrogance as to thinking, well, we're just going to live life my way. No, when you say I'm doing it my way, what you're really saying is I'm doing it Satan's way. And and people just ignore that particular aspect to it. So Romans 6 lays this down and says that the purpose For that identification with Christ in the baptism by the Holy Spirit is for the purpose that we walk in newness of life. Now, let me connect the next dot for this, and I want you to turn over to Romans 7, 6. Romans 7, 6 addresses the second issue here, which not only are we delivered from the tyranny of the sin nature, but as we've seen, we're delivered from the tyranny of the law. Uh, we've been delivered, Paul says in Romans 7, 6, we've been delivered from the law, having died. See, there's that same use of this concept of death, that identification with Christ in his death means that we're dead to the sin nature, dead to the law. Uh, we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So in Romans 6.4, we're to walk in newness of life. Now we're to serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So the newness of, of, of life and newness of the spirit, that's, the, that's this life that we're supposed to have. But as I pointed out last time in Romans 7, uh, where Paul's addressing the issue of the law's relationship to sin and death, he points out that the law reveals the sinfulness of the sin nature. The more God says thou shalt not, the more we want to. Uh, the more the law says uh, thou shalt do this, well, I'm not so concerned about that. I want to go do what I'm not supposed to do. And so the law brings this out uh, from inside the person. So the law reveals the sinfulness of the sin nature, and the sin nature is the cause of uh, spiritual death. Uh, and it is the cause of a, a sort of experiential carnal death, I would add, for the believer. And so in um, 
he raises and answers these questions in Romans uh, chapter 7, verse 7. Is the law sin? And he says, no, the law is not sin, but the law brings sin out. It exposes sin in your life. And Paul, think as a Pharisee, thought that he was able to do everything in the law, that he impressed everybody and impressed God. But what actually was happening was that he ultimately discovered that that on all the externals he could uh, deceive himself into thinking he was accomplishing it. But when it got to the last commandment, thou shalt not covet, he couldn't deal with the fact that uh, these these mental attitude sins uh, were, were, were he was not able to overcome. So his answer to the question, is the law of sin? Is it no, it's holy and revealed sin? That's in verses 7 through 12. And then in verses 13 to 25, he points out that the law tells us what to do. It doesn't impart the ability to perform. So we know what the requirement is, but there's the frustration of not being able to meet the requirement. So we do what we don't wish to do, and we do not do what we want to do, which is, as a believer, to obey him. And then we have the solution or the solution. I misspelled that typo there. The solution, which is the Holy Spirit. And at the end of chapter 7, he, he utters this statement, O wretched man that I am. Why is he so frustrated? Because he can't figure out how to meet the requirements of the law, how to do, how to live a holy life. That is, how to live a life that is set apart to the service of God. And all he ends up with is fulfilling the lust of the flesh, which brings just failure and temporal death or carnal death or operational death, whichever term you want to use, into his life. He's got a death-like experience. He's not experiencing the joy, the happiness, the fulfillment, the significance, the meaning that is should be his in Christ. So then he's, you see the shift in his thinking from, from the negative depression and defeatism of 24 to gratitude. See, if you don't get grace-oriented, that's the first step in any level of spiritual growth. And thanking God is a starting point of, of any kind of grace orientation, recognizing that God did everything and that we simply respond to it. So he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So here he's talking about serving the law that is fulfilling the mandates of the law, but it's because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Then I spent some time on Romans 8.1. This is a very well-known a textual problem. That means that there are some ancient manuscripts that include the set, the last phrase, and there are some ancient manuscripts that don't. So the question is, is this really part of the Word of God or not? If you have a King James Version or New King James Version, then that is included in your translation. If you have an NASB, NASB 95, NEV, uh, NIV, uh, ESV or any of the others, it's not there. And it has to do with two different ways of approaching or handling textual problems. I believe that uh, the majority text, which is similar to the uh, text of the, of, of, uh, of the King James or New King James, is the more accurate critical textual version. We went over this in detail last time. See, the critical text, which is behind a lot of the modern versions, is only based on two primary uh, 
ancient manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus from the 4th century. But the majority text, that is the majority of, of translations that we have, plus uh, Alexandrinus, which is also a North Africa, an early North African text from the early 5th century, very similar to Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and the corrected version of Sinaiticus, uh, include it. So I think it should be included on the basis of just the external evidence here, but also because of the context. Now, people will say, well, the scribe just copied it in the wrong place. It's it's located down in verse 4. There's no reason that God the Holy Spirit wouldn't repeat himself. He does that several times in the Scripture just to get our attention. But here it's defining... What's going on in Romans 8.1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If the verse stops there, many as, as it does for many people, they want to limit this to talking about no condemnation because we're justified. We're in Christ Jesus. But all throughout this section, those who Paul's talking about who don't are not under condemnation, we'll look at that word again in a minute, are further defined as those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so the relative clause, I point out in the bottom paragraph on the slide, the relative clause defines further who Paul's talking about in the phrase, those who are in Christ. The ones who do not have a condemnation are those who are also walking according to the Holy Spirit. And it hinges on the meaning of that word uh, for condemnation. And I pointed out it's used only three times in the New Testament. It's the word katakrima. And all three uses are in Romans. And uh, two of them are in Romans uh, chapter 5. And that tells us that uh, it's in the post-justification section in Romans. It's not in the section where he's talking about uh, the sinners back in Romans 1 and Romans 2 that are under condemnation, it's not talking about them. It's not in the section where it's talking about justification and being justified from condemnation. It's in the section where he's talking about how justified people live. And justified people are able to live for the Lord because uh, only when they walk by the Spirit and they're free from condemnation, which relates to punishment, and that's how the word should be translated, uh, punishment, and it's not uh, punishment in terms of eternal punishment, but the temporal punishment or consequences for sin in a person's life. Uh, the Low Nida Dictionary translates it or, or talks about its meaning as saying that it means to judge someone as definitely guilty and thus subject to punishment. So the idea is uh, guilt and punishment. And the uh, Art and Gingrich Dictionary says it's not merely condemnation, but the punishment following a pronouncement of legal guilt. So the focal point of this word is on punishment, and so it's really focusing on the divine discipline that comes in the life of a believer who continues to walk uh, according to the flesh. The emphasis is not on eternal punishment, but the consequences of sin in the life of the believer. And so it's the issue here is on the believer's spiritual growth. So in terms of summary, I said that uh, what Paul has been saying is we're no longer under a judicial penalty uh, from the Supreme Court of Heaven. That's back in the earlier part of Romans. That as a believer in Christ, we've been set free from the judicial penalty related to future punishment and from present spiritual death. But 
if we're not walking by the Spirit, we still act like we're dead spiritually. And so there are consequences to that, which is present-time punishment. So the arena of application here is related to those who are already in Christ. That means they're already justified. It's not to those who are unsaved, but to those who are saved. So key term that we run into in this passage that we have to understand is the word flesh that's going to come up. And so this is just a little review of the sin nature and the diagram that I'm using here because this term flesh comes up and, juxta- and is juxtaposed to spirit many times in Romans uh, Romans chapter uh, chapter 8. Uh, because it's introduced here in the first verse, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Paul recognizes here something that a lot of modern Christians don't want to admit, and that is that it's either one or the other. How many times in life have we heard people say, well, you know, I don't like so-and-so because for them everything is either black or white. It's either yes or no. And, and you know, there's just so many shades in between. Well, that's why they don't like God. God sees things in terms of his way or the highway. It's God's way or man's way. It's either walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh. You can't have your right leg walking by the Spirit and your left leg walking by uh, by the flesh. Notice I put the right leg walking by the Spirit and the left one by the flesh. Okay, just didn't want you to miss that was intentional. Uh, the sin nature is called the flesh. Now, the term the flesh in Scripture, the word literally means the, the physical body, the flesh. It can refer to the flesh of animals, the meat, the muscles, uh, the physical body of animals, or the flesh of man. But then it is taken metaphorically to refer to uh, the moral uh, uh, condemnation of man or the sin nature itself, that which is tied to man's temporal uh, situation and his temporal uh, failure. And so the term the flesh isn't just talking about something physical, but it's used to refer to that which uh, energizes and animates the fallen condition of man, which is the sin nature. And I think it's interesting how the Bible uses this as a phrase. Very few people really try to probe into the metaphor here and why Paul uses this metaphor. And I think it's because the, 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 the very uh, DNA structure of our physical bodies it carries the corruption of the sin nature and it gets transmitted from one generation uh, to another. So we have this sin nature represented by this black diamond. And at the very center of the sin nature is something that drives it. Everything comes back to this. If you can, if you can get a grip on the dynamics of the sin nature, then you have a great tool to use in understanding what is going on in the world, why it happens, why people do the things they do. It will help you from being overly disappointed in people who fail. Uh, it will keep you from being overly disappointed in yourself when you fail. And it will help you to understand that uh, there are basically two ways of looking at life. Uh, there's the way of looking at life from people who understand that man is inherently corrupt because of Adam's sin. 
and those who look at the world, look at mankind as being basically good, he's just flawed. He doesn't have uh, deep faults. Uh, he just has a few little problems. He's not dead. He's just a little bit sick at times. And that's the difference. And uh, Thomas uh, Sowell, in his book on the conflict of visions, has an excellent historical analysis of this, showing how this impacts how people look at society and how people look at government and how people look at the role of people and the role of those in, in government. And he shows historically that the people who tend to think that man is perfectible and that society is perfectible are those that think that man is basically good. And those who think that man is not perfectible, but that man is inherently corrupt, and therefore government needs to have checks and balances on itself because it's comprised of human beings, checks and balances on, on the citizenry, that they understand that man is basically evil. Uh, we use different terminology for these two groups. The group that thinks that man's basically good uh, are the people who are called liberals. People who think that man is basically evil are called conservatives. And that's been a historical designation and historical truth, and Sowell uh, does an excellent job of developing that. But only somebody who's a believer in Jesus Christ, who understands the word of God and the nature of sin, can understand that. And the many of the founding fathers understood that, whether they were actually born again or whether they were of a uh, sort of a Unitarian uh, theology, as some were in the among the founding fathers, or whether they were uh, a more dedicated Orthodox believer, they were products of a culture that had a strong Christian theistic orientation, and they understood that man was basically evil. And therefore, you can't give very much power to any human being because, because he, if he's evil, he's going to take advantage of that power and enlarge his own power. So they created a government in the Constitution with checks and balances to try to keep government small. And they created a government where, where it was designed so that there would be opposing forces that would keep the government from doing very much. Because in their view, a government that did very much and that was efficient in accomplishing its ends would eventually take freedom away from, uh, from the people. But because they understood that man was basically a sinner, they understood that, that sin had to be controlled by law and by society and by uh, punishment. Now, we live in a world today when the idea of sin has been forgotten and disposed of. Sin is antiquated. I read a book by Robert Schuller about 40 years ago, 35 to 40 years ago. Robert Schuller, who was the one who had the drive-through church originally out in Southern California. Where was that, George? Was that? In, and then he had the Crystal Cathedral in, in, in the city of Orange, there in Orange County. And in fact, one time you and I went over there to uh, to just uh, see the see the sights there at the uh, Crystal Cathedral. But he came out with a book that he sent around to, uh, they sent around a free copy to pastors all over the country. And it was called Self-Esteem, the New Reformation. And it was a fitting book for its age because in the introduction he said, now back in the Protestant Reformation in the 16, or early, in the 16th century, early 1500s, 
there was a belief that man was basically a sinner. And that was okay for that time. And they interpreted the gospel as, as, as Christ dying for sin. And that was okay for that time. But we're more advanced now. And we understand from a psycho- psychological research and everything that man's basic problem is, is self-esteem. He just doesn't think very highly of himself. And, and, and we need a, a gospel understood that Jesus died so that you can have have a good self-esteem. And sin is just an antiquated concept that just doesn't work anymore. And so that was his, his, uh, his gospel. But the Bible teaches that we're all sinners. And until the moment you're saved, this is what Paul goes into in Romans 6, everything that you do, whether it's something good or whether it's something deemed bad, everything comes from the sin nature. It either comes from uh, the area of weakness or it comes from an area of strength. The area of weakness produces sin. The area of strength produces what we call human good. But it's all motivated by this core thing that I've always called the lust pattern. But today, it, uh, psychology's tried to redefine this. We don't like sin anymore. So it's not that people are sinners. They just have disorders. So it's also known as, as uh, disorders or syndromes. People like those words because it softens it. It, 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 you got a syndrome. It's not your fault. It's not because you're making bad choices, because you're choosing uh, to follow the dictates of your sin nature. It's You, you just have a, a syndrome. It's not really your fault. Uh, you're okay, and I'm okay. And uh, Wayne Dwyer came out with that philosoph- uh, psychological uh, framework back in the 70s. I'm okay, you're okay. And the Bible says, you're not okay, and I'm not okay, and God is going to judge us for eternity in hell unless we do what he says. Um, so we have these syndromes or addictions, and we have chemical addictions and sex addictions and food addictions and uh, addictions to uh, laziness, addictions to Facebook, addictions to uh, Twitter, addictions to the Internet, addictions to your cell phone. We have addictions to everything. But we got there. We used to call them bad habits. But the trouble with the word bad habit is it says, well, it's your fault because it's your volition. You choose to do this. If it's an addiction, it's not my fault. I have a, it's, it's something within me. It's something else. I'm just a victim. And so it produces a victim mentality. But the Bible doesn't say you're victims of anything except your own volition. And the only solution is to, uh, submit to God. So we have addictions or emotional illnesses. You just, you just have an emotional problem. So now everybody's addicted to pills to take care of their emotional problems. And the Bible says that you've misidentified the problem, so you misidentified the solution. The problem isn't a syndrome, a disorder. It's not an addiction. The problem is you're a sinner. You're corrupt. And the only solution is first and foremost to recognize that Jesus died for your sins, to become free from the tyranny of the sin nature, and then to learn the Word of God and learn Bible doctrine and apply it and implement it in your life day to day, and all these things will be taken care of, and eventually they will uh, be flushed out of your life, but only because you've replaced the garbage in your soul with the truth of the Word of God. But as long as you're uh, majoring in the garbage in your soul, all that's going to come out is garbage, garbage in and garbage out. So we, we produce, the lust patterns produce both relative good and relative uh, sin. I always love the line when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, um, 
uh, how then you, being evil, give good gifts to your children? It's a great line. Jesus recognized that they, he's talking to his disciples. Now, um, you know, I could probably get away with it here, but in most churches, if a pastor walked into his board of deacons and said, you, you guys are all evil, but you're giving good gifts to your children, he might have a problem. But Jesus told his disciples, you being evil, he understood and he's communicating that their basic problem is sin. And we're all evil. You know, one of the, one of the things that makes a person a hero isn't because they have sterling character and it isn't because they're always making the right decisions. If we look at Hebrews 11, and we did this back when we studied Hebrews, and you look at all those great men of faith that are highlighted there, there's a couple of things we ought to remember. Number one, none of them were free from the tyranny of the sin nature because that didn't happen until the day of Pentecost. So they're not like us. They were still slaves to the sin nature, even though they were believers. And number two, they all failed miserably most of the time. Not unlike us. But what made them heroes of the faith was that at critical times, they rose above their sin nature. They rose above their carnality, and they chose to follow God and trust God at a critical time. That's what makes a person a hero. See, as, as a conservative who understands total depravity, I can look at the founding fathers of America and say, yeah, they all had feet of clay because we all do. We're all sinners. And what I want to focus on is what made them great. What were the elements that caused them to rise above the, fa- the flaws of their sin natures and the corruption of their humanity? Because that's what made them great. What, what, you know, we're, we're all subject to the same failures and flaws that they had. But the liberal comes at it and thinks, well, because they were a hero, that means you think they were always good. Well, let me show you about this affair and that affair and this problem and that problem. And see, they want to tear them down because they had a lot of failure. The issue in life is we're all failures most of the time when it comes to God's standards. What makes heroes are those who rise above those failures, rise above their sin nature, and trust God at critical, at critical times throughout their life. That's what makes heroes heroes. Not that they do what comes naturally, but that on occasion they did what did not come naturally, what was unique. And so even as sinners, even as fallen creatures, we do relative good, but we're still flawed sinners. So we produce what we call human good. There are many wonderful moral uh, people out there who give to many good causes, who help people, who um, are, are wonderful, kind, generous uh, people who give of their money, give of their time, give of, uh, of their talents. But it's all done from the sin nature. It has no eternal value. But then on the other side, the bottom of the triangle, what's happened at the bottom of the triangle, we have our uh, personal sins, the areas of weakness when we commit sin, when we commit overt sins, such as uh, 
outbursts of anger or murder or thievery or we have sins of the tongue, gossip, slander, you know, all the gossip that you do every day when you pass on un- undocumented emails uh, that uh, tell something negative about uh, some politician or somebody else, and you don't know whether it's true or not, but you would like to believe that it's true about that person because they're just such a horrible politician. Uh, but that's gossip, that's slander. That's uh, that's not biblical. So we have a new area of sin called computer slander and computer uh, computer gossip. Now the lust patterns can manifest themselves in a couple of different directions that are sort of opposite to one another, and these are trends. And I've uh, given them a little bit of a new name, calling them uh, let me, the orders out. There we go. Up. Oh, I got to rebuild that whole slide. Uh, called it desire trend because it's lust expressed through a desire in one direction or another. That lust drives it either towards asceticism, which is the idea that somehow if I just live according to a, a rigorous moral code, I'm going to impress the God or gods or fate or the universe and things will go well with me. And so there's a trend towards asceticism, which is the idea that if I... Uh, 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 give up things that that's going to impress God. If I dedicate my life to uh, my religious system, that's going to impress God. Legalism is the idea that what I do is the basis for blessing from God. And that leads to a moral degeneracy like the Pharisees. That's what they thought. It was They were very, very moral, but they rejected God's offer of righteousness for their own righteousness. So they were moral degenerates. And then on the other side... We have the opposite, those who are licentious, lascivious. They follow all of their lust patterns. They just, uh, you know, Jesus preferred to hang out with this crowd because the other crowd doesn't think they need his help. So he hung out with the publicans and the uh, uh, prostitutes and the sinners and got judged by the Pharisees, those on the other side, uh, for that. But people who are... Uh, licentious and lascivious, they know they need grace. They, they, there's no pretension there. They, they know they, they're desperately in need of grace. But if you live in the sin nature, that leads to an immoral degeneracy. And immoral degeneracy is no better and no worse than moral degeneracy. They're both degenerate. That's the problem. It's not the other. Now, as we look at what Paul is saying here in in our passage in, uh, in Romans, 7, uh, Romans 8, he's talked about the eternal realities, that at the instant we trust Christ as Savior, we are identified with Christ, we're placed in Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's our new identification. So we're in Christ. We are His. But in terms of our day-to-day temporal reality, moment by moment in time, we can either be operating on the Word of God, being filled by the uh, Holy Spirit with the Word of God, and walking in the light, or we can walk in the darkness according to the uh, sin nature. And when we do that, we're walking in darkness and we're experiencing the same results as the unbeliever. We have a life of death and corruption, of unhappiness and misery, because we're operating on arrogance. And the only way to recover is through First uh, John 1, nine. So as I pointed out last time, as we get into uh, that first verse in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, no punishment. 
For those who are walking according to the flesh, not walking according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then he's going to explain this a little bit in the next verse. He says, why can I say this? Why is there no condemnation now, no punishment, to those of you who are walking according to the Spirit? He says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So you have a contrast here between uh, two laws, between the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and of death. Now, in that first phrase that talks about the law of the uh, spirit of life, uh, the first phrase there, the of the spirit, it shows the source of that law. Uh, See, we're still under a law. It's not the Mosaic law, but it's absolute realities. It's absolute standards. And it comes from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And it, but He's the Spirit who produces life. That, that second genitive there of life should be understood as a genitive of product. It's, it's the law from the Spirit who produces life in us. That life comes from the Spirit and it is uh, in Christ Jesus. And it has set us free from the law of sin and of death. So there's, again, we have these, these contrasts. It's either one or the other. Now, when we look at what Paul is going to say in Romans 8, I want you to observe about four things here. First of all, that the word translated spirit with an uppercase S, pneuma, is used 13 times in Romans 6 through 8. Now, the words used a couple of other times that mean things, but in terms of meaning spirit, the Holy Spirit, it's only 13 of those times. <coughs> and 12 of those are in Romans chapter 8. There was one in Romans 7, 6 that we, are <coughs> that we were set free from the, uh, from the law that we should serve in the newness of the spirit. And everything from Romans 7, 7 to 25 was a digression. Romans 8, 1 and 2, he comes back to what it means to serve in the newness of the Spirit. So, isn't that interesting? The Holy Spirit's not mentioned at all in Romans 6, only once in Romans 7, but 13, uh, 12 times in Romans 8. Second thing we should observe is that sin is, con- uh, Spirit is contrasted with sin once in Romans 8, 2. Once in Romans 8.2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. See the contrast between the law of the spirit and the law of sin. And the rest of the time, the contrast is with flesh. Romans 8.4, 8.5, 8.9, and 8.13. My point is that sin and flesh are synonymous. Paul prefers to use most of the time the word flesh to describe the sin nature because it permeates our entire life, our entire body, our entire person. So he uh, contrasts it's either one or the other. It's that black and white thing again. You're either walking by the Spirit, you're either walking by the Spirit, you're walking by the flesh. You can't do a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. There's no mixed motives. It's either one or the other. Spirit is, in this passage, is connected to life and contrasted to death. This is one of the major concerns of Scripture, going all the way back to Moses in the Torah. He sets before the people, he says, I set before you this day a choice, life 
or death? Are you going to follow the Torah and experience the benefits of life? Or are you going to disobey God and experience death? There are consequences to our decisions. And if you make the right decisions uh, based on God's revelation, then you'll experience the fullness of blessing from God. And if you don't, then you're going to experience the ongoing punishment and and condemnation in life uh, from God. So in this whole chapter, we see a, a stark, rigid contrast between flesh and spirit, between life and death. It's one or the other. And we see this in various passages, such as in uh, Romans 8, 12 to 13, where Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation. Now, that's an interesting word because there are a lot of Christians who think that if we're obligated to do anything after we're saved, then you're a legalist. If I have to do it, grace says I can do whatever I want to do. But the Bible says, no, we're under obligation. There are responsibilities that come with our privileges in the royal family of God. That We're a new creature in Christ. There is a purpose for our life, and we are not to waste it. We are to live uh, that life for the Lord. So we are under obligation, Paul says, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You're not obligated to your sin nature at all. But for 8, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you lived like the sin nature was the boss, so it's real hard to say no. That's because you've got a really bad habit, and so do I, doing what the sin nature says every time, and it's hard to break that. And you can't do it without grace and without the Holy Spirit. So we're under obligation not to the sin nature, to live according to the sin nature. For if you are living according to the flesh... Notice he uses that same terminology both times, according to the flesh, you must die. Now, wait a minute. They're not going to lose their salvation. That's not what it's talking about. It's not saying you're going to have spiritual death. Remember, there are uh, seven different kinds of death in the Bible. There's physical death. There's spiritual death. Everyone is born spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but they were alive physically. So there's physical life, there's our physical death, spiritual death, there's sexual death. Adam, I'm uh, excuse me, Abraham was spiritually dead. He was past the age when he could uh, father children. There's positional death, which occurs when we're identified with Christ in His death. That's our positional death. There is a carnal death when we are living according to the sin nature. Uh, there's temporal death when we're experiencing. Uh, uh, the consequences of that in our life. And then there's the second death, which occurs for those who've rejected Christ and they go to eternity in the lake of fire. So uh, when he says you must die, he's not talking about uh, spiritual death. He's not talking about future eternal punishment. He's talking about experiencing the consequences, the death-like consequences of living according to the sin nature. But in contrast, if by the Spirit, see, the Spirit is presented as the instrument or tool by which we accomplish this. By the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. Now, notice he shifted from talking about the flesh to the body. So Paul constantly uses terms relating the sin nature to our our physical bodies because it's through our physical bodies that the sin nature expresses itself in what we say and what we do, where we go, those kinds of things. So we have to remember that this passage is addressed to the brethren. It's addressed to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. 
He's warning believers so that we can have life rather than a death-like existence. And second, uh, believers have been given eternal life, but they can still experience carnal death. So then in Romans 6, uh, 16 and 21, Paul had laid this down, that either that we live our lives, we're all slaves, but we either are slaves of sin resulting in death. But he's talking to believers. He's not talking about dying spiritually. He's talking about experiencing the death-like results of living on the basis of sin. So we either are, are, are live as slaves to the sin nature, which destroy, which is self-destructive, or we live as as uh, obedient to God, slaves of God, and that results in righteousness and life. Righteousness and life are seen as two sides of the same coin. In Romans 6.21, he says, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now saying? For the outcome of these things is death. So that's what he's talking about. James 1 gives us a dynamic for how sin op- the sin nature operates. He says, Each one is tempted... When he's carried away. See, we think of temptation as only when we've yielded to it. I'm not tempted unless I yield to it. Now, that's not the biblical view. Uh, if you go on a diet and you are, you wake up in the morning and you have a satisfying breakfast and uh, 30 or 45 minutes later somebody offers you a donut, you say, no, I'm satisfied, I'm not very hungry. But you get up in the morning and you're running late and you don't get to have your breakfast and somebody offers you a donut and you bite their hand off getting it. You were tempted by someone else both times. Just because you didn't yield to it or feel attracted to it doesn't mean you weren't tempted. That's the external or objective sense of temptation. Anybody who's ever been hunting knows that you can find a wild animal that's going to be tempted by the bait and the trap. And they'll come up and they'll sniff around it and walk around it, look at it, back away, look at it. And finally they decide they're not going to, they're not going to go for it. See, they've been tempted by the, by the bait and the trap, but they didn't yield to the temptation. We often think of temptation only in the subjective sense of yielding to it, but the Bible talks about it in both senses. So each person is tempted externally. Uh, here, here it talks about moving from that external temptation, which was the word used earlier in James 1, but it becomes subjective when you're carried away and enticed by your own lust. This is when all of a sudden you decide you're going to yield to that external test, and now you want it, and you're going to go for it and grab it. So when lust, that internal desire, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So it's this process of internally now you want it, and when you you bring it to completion, uh, then it's sin. When sin is accomplished, what does it do? It brings forth death. This is for believers. This is what happens in our life. So we can have a life uh, characterized by the blessing of God, or we can have a life characterized by uh, sin and corruption. So this is the contrast. It's our decision. Are we going to uh, pursue life or pursue death? So in conclusion, let me just give these two uh, definitions. Life is to be understood as the capacity to life and experience the joy, peace, stability, contentment, and happiness in any and all circumstances based on the fact that God the Holy Spirit has been filling us with his word. There's a fullness of God's word in our soul, and we're walking by the Spirit and advancing to spiritual maturity. But death, in contrast, 
is the loss of spiritual blessing in time due to the failure to execute the plan of God for our life. It's based on attempts to live life on the basis of our own desires, our own terms, and ultimately rejecting Scripture as the authority of life. The reality is, in Romans 6.18, we've been set free from sin, uh, and we, but we've become slaves of righteousness. We're always slaves, either of sin or of, of righteousness. We've been set free from sin and enslaved to God, and the result of that is what? Eternal life, not life ever, everlasting. This is a use of that word where it refers to the qualitative aspect of life as much as the eternal, ongoing aspect of life. This is the freedom that we have in Christ. Romans 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now, this brings us to Romans 8.3, talking about the law, and we'll start there uh, next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this this evening, realizing we're free to serve you, and that real life comes from serving you, not serving our sin nature, not serving our lust patterns, not serving uh, our desire for independence, but serving you, and that everything in this life needs to be brought under uh, the umbrella of that understanding, that we are saved to serve you, and that everything in life needs to be directed and focused on that aspect. We need to be trained biblically so we think right, but that thinking right leads to right actions and right living and being involved with one another, loving one another, loving uh, being involved in evangelism and expressing the gospel and all of the different manifestations of the Christian life and its work within the body of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.